Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The foundations of the deep and the foundation and the windows of heaven were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest and the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days, and, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 600th year, 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may, be, that they may swarm on the face of the earth, that they may fruitful and be multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's turn to the Lord again in prayer. Holy God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we, we see the, the, the end of the destruction of, of all things. We see, Lord, every man and woman, every child, every animal on the face of the earth wiped out but for one family and the animals aboard the ark with them. Lord, we, we see this and we wonder. We, we wonder at the sinfulness of man. And Lord, we, we wonder at your holiness. For though we would, our natural response would be to recoil from, from so much death and so much destruction. Yet, Lord, the truly marvelous thing is that you would save any. For, Lord, you are truly holy. You are truly righteous. And, Lord, you must punish all sin. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture that you would, would help us to see the enduring truths that are there for us, that you'd help us to see the, the, the confidence 
that, that Noah had in you, the faith that Noah had in you, which was truly a gift from you. And Lord, we pray that we would be emboldened in our faith and that we would increasingly walk in, in, in obedience in our own lives. Lord, help us to see and help us to take hope in the midst of, of whatever circumstance we currently face and, and to not fear in future, from future circumstance. But Lord, help us to have a, a hope and a confidence in you. For you are indeed the faithful one. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? Maybe you've been facing a, a health trial or a, a relational trial or a, a temptation trial or a financial trial or, or any sort of trial and you've been in that trial for so long that sometimes you wonder if it's ever going to end. Maybe you are, are in a trial like that at this very moment. Or, or maybe you are in fear of, of some future trial. You, you, you see what's, what's going on around the world. You're, you're aware of the increasing persecution of, of Christians. You, you watch the news and you see what's going on right here in Canada. And you know that historically increased secular, secularism and humanism tend to result in hostility towards the church. And so you worry about what the future is going to, to hold for you, let alone for your children. Maybe you feel all at sea, confused and, and not sure which way is up. Well, no one has ever been at sea like Noah was at sea. For Noah, the whole earth was sea. So, so as, we, as we sit here thousands of years and half a world away from, from the events uh, that, that took place here in Genesis 8, we, we, we see truths that are applicable to us. We see truths that are, are just as applicable to us as they were to to Noah and to his family on the ark. We're going to see that, that here in Genesis 8, there's four scenes. First, that God remembers Noah in verses 1 to 5. Then Noah sends out the birds in Genesis 8, 6 to 12. And, and then God sends out Noah in verses 13 to 19. And then finally, Noah worships and, and God promises in verses 20 to 22. And, and each of these sections has a lot to teach us about who God is and how he deals with his children. So first of all, in verses 1 to 5, we see that God remembers Noah. Remember where we left Noah at the end of Genesis 7, floating on the ark on that vast expanse of water. The entire face of the earth was covered with water. By the time we get to Genesis 8 verse 1, Noah and his family had already been on the ark for 157 days, five months plus the seven days before the flood. We don't know what the conditions were like on the ark, but we can be pretty certain it wasn't comfortable. This was no luxury cruise liner. It, it was a giant box, a giant box, 150 meters long, like a, like a giant coffin, really. And, and it was full of animals, and so it probably didn't smell very good. 
Not to mention the fact that there were, were very likely the sort of family squabbles that one would expect under such difficult circumstances. Maybe, maybe you squabble as a family under far less trying circumstances than what that family experienced on the ark. We don't know exactly what it was like on the ark, but we know one thing for certain. It was much better to be on the ark than off the ark. It was much better to be inside the ark than outside the ark. The entire population of the earth, every man, every woman, every human being apart from those eight was dead. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives were the only human beings left on the entire planet. Every animal apart from those on the ark, was also dead. God had seen the wickedness of humanity and so he had blotted humanity out. He saw how they had corrupted the earth with their sin and so he destroyed them with the earth as he had rained down destruction from above and from below. And in, it was really in an act of decreation. He caused the, the waters above and the waters below to mix. And in the middle where they met was absolute and total destruction. Death and carnage because of man's sin. He caused the fountains of the great deep to birth, force, birth forth. And, and from above, he had opened the windows of heaven. Everything was dead, and the only ones left were floating on a vast expanse of blue. But again, whatever the circumstances were like inside, it was much better than on the outside. On the inside, they were safe, but they were not yet saved. There were still helpless passengers on that huge floating coffin. So far, it had been over five months. And for those five months, from what we can tell, heaven was silent. There had been no word of God to Noah. God had told Noah when the, ark, when the flood was going to start, but he had not told Noah when the flood was going to end. And so Noah and his family were left to wonder what would happen to them and when. But then in Genesis 8.1, we see those words again. We see those words that change everything. But God. God was grieved that he had made man, but God had favor on Noah. God caused judgment to rain down on the line of the serpent, but God had mercy on Noah. God had brought global destruction, but God delivered Noah, his family, and the animals on the ark. So instead of, of where we leave off at the, end of Genesis, uh, at the end of Genesis 7, the waters prevailed on the earth those days, but God remembered Noah and those beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Notice it doesn't say that God remembered Noah's obedience or Noah's righteousness. He remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. We could camp out on this glorious truth for, for months. God remembered. It's not as if God forgot. God is omniscient. God knows all things. He, he declares the, the end from the beginning. God doesn't forget anything. The words God remembered speak of his faithful love and his timely providence. This is covenant language. 
These words are often found in the context of God's God's deliverance in fulfillment of a previous promise. For example, in speaking of of Israel's slavery in captivity in Egypt in Exodus 2.24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God remembered Noah. God remembered the promise that he had made to Noah back in Genesis 6, Genesis 6, that he would establish his covenant with him. God remembers the promise he had made to Noah and God preserves him. Friends, when God remembers, things happen. God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Four times in this passage we're told that the waters recede. Just as God had caused the flood waters to rise, now he causes them to abate. These are not merely naturalistic processes. God is doing it. This is divinely ordained and divinely controlled. This is God's work. Just as God had unleashed the waters from above and below, now he restrains them. In this this passage, we see several parallels with the creation account. The, The wind blows and the waters recede. The word for wind is the same word that is used here in Genesis 1-2 for the Spirit, where the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. God here is is bringing a renewed work of creation. There's also a, a strong parallel with Moses, where God sent a mighty wind to divide the waters of the Red Sea so the children of Israel could cross over in safety. We're meant in this this passage to look forward and to look back to what God does for his covenant people. So now here in in verse 4, after months of floating on the waves, the passengers of of the ark heard something that they had not heard before. They heard the sound of the ark scraping across the bottom. Twenty years ago, I, I took a trip on a liveaboard dive boat to the Great Barrier Reef. And on our first night, we were, we were far out to sea. There was no land in sight. And if you've ever slept on a, on a boat, it's, it's, it's one of the most soothing, relaxing things that, that you can do. I was out. But suddenly, I was jolted awake by the sound of, of the hull of our boat grinding across a coral reef. I'll never forget that sound. It was like a thousand fingernails on a thousand chalkboards. I, I, I sat like a bolted straight. I was terrified. I was, I was about to grab my, my life vest and head for the deck when we got the all clear that the boat was intact. What had happened was that the, the man who was supposed to be on watch had, had fallen asleep. I didn't realize that our mooring line had snapped. And so we, were, we had drifted a, a, across a coral reef and had done probably all kinds of damage. But thankfully, Thankfully, it wasn't a lot of damage done to the boat. We didn't sink that night. Again, I'll, I'll never forget that, the fear that I felt in that moment. But I think for Noah and the people in the ark, this sound was exactly the opposite. This was the first sign of land that they, that they had experienced. This is, I believe we're, we're supposed to, to, to see hope here. This was not a bad sound at all. This, this sound meant hope. It meant, it meant land. 
That's the picture we're given that on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The ark was grounded on a submerged peak. Now, this is not specifically Mount Ararat in in eastern Turkey, but the Ararat mountain range, probably Urartu, which which was north of of Mesopotamia in, in modern Armenia. So I wonder if that makes Noah the first Armenian. Definitely not. The the ark came to rest. And the verb that is used here is the same as that from which Noah's name is derived. Victor Hamilton says that one might say that the ark Noahed on one of the mountains of Ararat. Remember the the word play of of Lamech, Noah's father, as he announced Noah's name in Genesis 5.29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech hoped for rest from the curse of Genesis 3 through Noah. And so by using that, that word here, rest, we're seeing a glimmer of hope that relief from the curse is coming. Gradually, the, the waters continue to abate until land is finally visible. And we're given, a, again, a specific date on the 10th month, on the first day of the month. So we've been given inside information of what God is doing here. We see that in in verse 1, but but at least from what we can tell, it's it's another seven months before Noah hears anything from God. Over a year on the ark, but only a few lines in Scripture. It, It must have seemed like an eternity to those on board the ark, but they had hope while they waited. The people of God live on hope. They live on hope. We remember that God remembers us and we have hope. You too can have hope while you wait. You while you wait for deliverance. God has not promised you deliverance from the trial, but he has promised you deliverance through the trial. Just as he did with Noah and his family on the ark. God has promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that God remembers you. God remembers you. Never forget that. That God will never forget you. No matter what you are going through, no matter what circumstances His providence has brought into your life, God will never, ever, ever forget you. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should not have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is a promise that was given to Israel, but there's an application that we can see in our lives that that we are engraved on the palms of God's hands. The scars that are still evident in the hands of God the Son were put there for you. What you understand is is far better than what Isaiah could have understood, far better than what Noah could have understood. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 32. Again, you are engraved on the hands of Christ. 
When he died on the cross, he did not die for the nameless, faceless mass of humanity. He died for you. He died for the elect. He died for his bride. God will never forget you. We see in in verses 6 to 12 that Noah sends the birds out. We see here in uh, in, the, in verse 6, that, that still Noah waited. He, he waited another 40 days before he did anything. Now just remember about how long they've been on the ark. It's, 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 now, it's now been months and months and months on the ark. Now, I, I would find even, even a month on, on a ship unbearable. Even if it was, it was on a Caribbean cruise, I would find a, a month extremely difficult. But these were not cruise conditions. This was a giant floating box full of animals. But here, was, as Noah waited, we see a picture of, of his patience. Uh, Von Rad says that the, the narrator subtly lets us witness the waiting and hoping of those enclosed in the ark. We, we get a, a sense of Noah's eager expectancy to leave the ark, but we're also seeing Noah's faith and obedience. Remember, the Lord called him into the ark, and the Lord had shut the door of the ark, and so Noah was waiting for the Lord's instructions to disembark from the ark. From Noah's vantage point, he, he couldn't tell at this point how far the waters had abated. And so he sends out a raven to see if the, if the waters had dried from the earth. Now, this is a, this, sending out this bird is a, is, a period, is, a, is a sign that the period of God's wrath has ended up from the earth as the first life emerges from the ark. Makes sense that Noah would, would first send a raven. Not only is a raven unclean and, and unfit for sacrifice, but a raven is, is a hardy bird that eats, eats carrion. So a raven would have been able to find food on the floating carcasses that would no doubt still have been readily available. The raven didn't return. It went to and fro until the waters dried from the earth. And next, Noah sends a dove. Now, contrary to ravens, doves are clean and fit for sacrifice. But but doves are more delicate and they they have a strong homing instinct. With no place to land, the, the dove returns back to Noah and to the ark. And so Noah reaches out his hand and brings the dove back inside the ark. So he knew that much of the earth was still flooded. Then in his patience, he waits another seven days before sending the dove out again. I believe this is meant to draw your mind to the seven-day week of creation. The week was, was still in effect as it is to this day. But this time, the dove did not return empty-handed or or empty-beaked. It had an olive leaf in its mouth, in its its beak. Interestingly, I didn't realize this, but olive trees can actually grow underwater. So olive trees would have likely been amongst the first vegetation to sprout up after the flood. The olive leaf, in in this sense, was a a sign of new life. It was a sign of of a new world, of a new creation, so to speak. But what do we think of when we think of an olive branch today? We we tend to think of an olive branch as being a sign of peace. As being a sign of peace. And and that's where this this narrative is where that originates. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote that Noah's dove announced to the world the assuagement of divine wrath. 
when she had been sent under the ark and returned with an olive branch. And so to this day, we think of an olive branch as a sign of peace. People speak of, of holding out the olive branch. I remember a few months ago um, that, that Katy Perry sent Taylor Swift a, an olive branch uh, to end their, their long-standing feud. Now, I wouldn't recognize either one of them in a lineup, and I don't know any of their music, but I thought this was an interesting story, that, that one of them sent an olive branch as a sign of peace to, to her, her friend that she, from which she'd been estranged. This, was a, this, this gesture struck me as, as something that's still, still considered in, in, the, our, in, our, in our culture that comes back from Noah and the ark. And so here, in, the, in this instance, as Noah waits on the ark, and, and three times, this third time, he, he sends out the dove, and it doesn't return to him. We see those 40 days, and then seven, and seven, and seven, as, as, as showing Noah's patience. And Noah ex, is experiencing patience because he has experienced peace. Noah is at peace with God. And so he does not fear his circumstances. And like the flood that Noah experienced in our trials, in our lives, trials often advance swiftly, but retreat slowly. Are you experiencing peace in the midst of trials? Are you experiencing patience in the midst of trials? The only way to have peace in the midst of trials is to have peace with God. And the only way to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. God declared war on His Son and pouring out His wrath on His Son so that we might have peace with Him. The Lord has given you immeasurably better news than that, than that dove with the olive leaf in her beak by giving you infinitely more than an olive branch. He has given you the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, Acts 10, 36. But then after all that waiting in verses 13 to 19, God sends Noah out. Noah, his family, and the animals have now been on the ark for over 10 months. Again, we're given an exact date. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the, from off the earth. The flood was finally over. And Noah removes the covering, uh, some form of covering from the top of the ark and saw that the ground was dry. But still, he waited almost two more months. The Lord had shut Noah in to the ark over a year ago. But Noah waited for God's timing to come out. And then finally, the instruction to comes to depart. And we're given yet another exact date. It was now the second month on the 27th day of the month when God speaks to Noah. Verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Four times in these few verses, this is emphasized. Go out. Verse 16, bring out. Verse 17, went out. Verse 18, went out. And verse, uh, sorry, verse 19 again, went out. God speaks to Noah. God speaks directly to Noah, not to his family, not to the animals. It is Noah who is God's covenant partner and his, his family on the ark are beneficiaries of the covenant that God had made with Noah. 
This command is also for Noah to give to his family any animals. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So finally, after a year, over a year, on board the ark, Noah steps out and the other passengers follow. Derek Kidner describes Noah as almost a second Adam as he stepped into a virgin world washed clean by judgment. Certainly, this is a a new creation that's in mind here as no one, his family and the multitudes of animals went out with this creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply on the earth. And it's from there that the animals spread all over the earth. We've talked about how the geography of the earth would have changed remarkably by, by by being inundated by all that water. Friends, do not believe the lie that, that animals evolved over millions of years in specific locations. As the geography of the earth changed, we see very rapid speciation, very rapid change of, of, of animals in, into, into their, their distinct forms that we see now. Remember, there was, was one, one dog kind on the ark that, that through, through natural selection turned into wolves and foxes and coyotes and, and your, your pet German Shepherd. This took place after. You know, we read about, uh, they, they say that, that animals evolved in specific locations and because of their unique geography, they, they evolved in certain ways. Well, I remember reading a number of years ago that they discovered a, a fossilized platypus, which was supposed to have evolved only in Australia. They found a fossilized platypus in South America. Or when we think about here in North America, we we found the remains of of mammoths, of elephants. And so so don't believe the lie that we're told about about the the evolution of animals over millions and millions of years. God is, is, is the one who is behind creation. He's the one who is sustaining creation. There's, there's parallels here between God calling Noah out of the ark and God's call of Abraham in Genesis 12. So again, we're, we're, th- we're meant to, to look forward. In, in 8.15, God said to Noah, and then in 12.1, the Lord said to Abraham, well, Abram. In 8.16, the command was come out of the ark. In 12.1, the command is leave your country. In 8.18, Noah came out, and in 12.4, Abram left. And then in the next section as well, into, and into chapter 9, we'll also see strong parallels. In 8.20, Noah built an altar. And then at 12.7, Abram built an altar. In 9.1, God blessed Noah. In 12.2, God said that he would bless Abram. In 9.1, the command, be fruitful and multiply. And in 12.2, to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Again, this is the way that God deals with his people. This is how God treats his chosen people. He calls them. He blesses them. He instructs them. He sustains them. And he uses them to to advance his cause and to advance his kingdom. But the new creation that Noah experienced was still imperfect. Noah was still imperfect. Yet Noah is called faithful because the God who called him is faithful. Fellow Christian, you have far greater promises than Noah received or than Abram received. God has called you as his adopted child. 
He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He has instructed you from his word. He sustains you with his spirit. He's using you to advance his kingdom. He sustains you by his, by, by his spirit. God is, is sustaining you in, in, in ways that, 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 that Noah couldn't imagine. So because of God's faithfulness, because of God's holiness, we are to walk in faithfulness and in holiness. But you can't do this by, by just willing yourself to obey. You, you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to be more righteous from here on in. First of all, if, if you're not a Christian, if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart, you know that it's a fool's errand, that you will never be able to obey even the, the first command of God. But for those of you here who are, are truly born again, who are followers of Jesus Christ, you know that there, there's still a battle going on, that you still have to fight for your sanctification. But now you do it because God is at work within you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. These are shadows and, and types for, for, for Noah and for, for Abraham. But for us, we see the reality. We see the fulfillment in Christ as we wait for the coming day when Christ will return and take us to be with him forever. Friends, he who calls us is faithful. And finally, in the last section of this passage, in verses 20 to 22, Noah sacrifices and God promises. What's the first thing that, that Noah does when he steps off the ark? Some would imagine that he would, would get down on his knees and, and kiss the ground. But he doesn't do anything of the sort. He worships. He knows from whence his deliverance comes. His motive is joyful, and he makes a free will offering. The word that's used there for offering is the, the same word that's used um, in, 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 in Moses' offerings. It's not the same word that was used of, of Abel's offering in, in Genesis chapter 4. This, is, this word that's used here for offering is, is, is in fact, is the most frequently word, used word for offerings in the Old Testament. It communicates propitiation, the sacrifice that, that turns away wrath. It, it communica communicates petition. This is a, it's with it as a prayer of intercession. It communicates thanksgiving. It's giving back to the Lord a portion uh, of what he has been given. The water had fallen on the earth, and now the smoke of the offering rises to heaven. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, verse 21. God is spirit. This is an anthropomorphism, a metaphor that shows us how God responds to his people and is pleased by their worship. In the pagan Gilgamesh and Atrahasis epics, it's crudely described how the gods during the flood were hungry because man was not there to make sacrifices. And so they both depict the, the gods swarming around the sacrifices like flies, ravenous, without man's gifts. And that's the reason in, in those, those Gilgamesh and Atrahasis epics why the flood ends. But friends, the Lord is, is not making a, a promise to man. He's not ending the flood because, because he needs something from man. He, he's making a, a promise to man and ending the flood because man needs everything from him. That's why the flood ends. 
It seems here that, that Noah is, is living up to the fa- his father's prophecy that we spoke about from, from 529, that, that through Noah, relief would come from the curse of the ground, from Genesis 3.17. When we look at God's response to this, we're, we're, giving, we're being given a glimpse of divine deliberation. As God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, on the face of it, this is, this is an apparent paradox. Because remember back from chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, that God flooded the earth because of the inherent sinfulness in man's heart. But here he promises never to flood the earth again because of the inherent sinfulness of man's heart. So is God saying here that he isn't going to curse the ground for the very reason that he cursed it in the first place? Obviously not. The the Hebrew word that's translated in the ESV for can also be although or, or even though. And I believe this better fits the context. And here, so I think that the NIV gets it right. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. God is here making a concession. This is a testimony to, to God's grace and God's mercy, at least until final judgment. E- even, though, even though man's total depravity continues to be a present reality, God is still extending grace because Noah's sacrifice represents the future reality. Because Noah's sacrifice, which was, which was we know it, 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 there is the blood of, of bulls and goats can never take away sins. That sacrifice had no, had no power in itself. It's, it's what the sacrifice pointed to, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.2, God loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ is the sacrifice to whom all of those sacrifices point. We've seen Noah's response to the the deliverance that, that he received. I wonder, what is your response to the deliverance that you have received? I remember watching a documentary in which a team of, of ophthalmologists went to North Korea to do cataract surgery. And with that, that team of surgeons, there was, was an undercover team of reporters and they had, they'd smuggled in cameras so they could, could let those in the outside world see what life was like in one of the most oppressive countries on earth. And remember so distinctly that, that as the, the bandages were, were unwound from, from the, the faces of, of those people who had had the surgery, people who had not been able to see anything for years, the, the first thing that they did when those bandages came off was walk around the surgeons who had done it to, to bow before an image of Kim Jong-il, the country's despotic leader. I wonder, do you step around the Lord to give homage to something other than Him. Anytime you find satisfaction in something other than God, you are giving homage to a false God. Anytime you choose sin instead of God, you're paying homage to a false God. Brothers and sisters, you have been delivered from something immeasurably greater than blindness. We prayed earlier for Tyler. 
and, and the way that, that his, his, he testifies of, of, being, of being delivered from his sin even through his very difficult personal circumstances. Next time you see Tyler, ask him his testimony. Ask him the testimony about how he came to faith in Christ. And he says that the God used this, this, this car, I won't say accident, this collision. God is behind Tyler's quadriplegia and he testifies to that. And he trusts God. Because Tyler knows that he has been delivered from something infinitely worse than quadriplegia. We have all been delivered from something infinitely worse, infinitely worse than blindness, infinitely worse than quadriplegia, infinitely worse even than a global flood. Friends, if you are here in Christ, you have been delivered from the wrath of a holy God. And you have been delivered from that wrath because he delivered his own son, his holy son, up for your sins, for my sins. How do you respond? What could you possibly do? You can never pay back God for, for such a glorious salvation. There is a coming wrath. There, there's a coming wrath that is far, far worse than a global flood. This is a, a wrath from which there is no turning back. How will you respond to the great deliverance that you have received? Psalm 116 verses 12 to 14 tells you how. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. So friends, simply lift up the cup of salvation. Rejoice and the salvation that has been accomplished for you by Christ. In a few moments, we are going to receive the Lord's Supper together. This is an opportunity to, to lift up the cup of salvation. As, as this is, as this, this is not a, another sacrifice. The sacrifice has been completed. This points to the sacrifice. This is an opportunity for, for you to remember this is one of two ordinances that the church has been given. The, the Lord's Supper and Baptism points to the salvation that we have in Christ. So, so for those who are in Christ, you are invited to, to lift up the cup of salvation. You, you are also to call on the name of the Lord, to, to pray to the Lord. He's been faithful to you. He will always be faithful to you. Prayer, prayer is not a burden. If you understand prayer rightly, it's a privilege. It is one of the greatest privileges that we have to be able to enter into the throne room of the Most High God and to do so because of Christ. And pay your vows to the Lord. Resolve to be obedient and to walk in that obedience by God's strength. You're not called, you're never called to sacrifice the life of an animal, but your own life. Paul says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God who calls you is faithful, and he will enable you to be faithful.
He will never forget you. And He will never let you forget Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the great grace which you have poured out on us in Christ. Lord, we deserve your cup of wrath poured to overflowing. But we praise you that you sent your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who drank that cup of wrath down to the dregs for us. And so, Lord, you have not just given us an, an empty cup, even though we would be most blessed if that is all you gave us. But, Lord, instead you have given us a cup that is overflowing with blessing. Lord, you are faithful. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? So Lord, as those who are called into your presence through Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you for the great salvation we have received. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to walk in holiness and obedience and thanksgiving and in faithfulness. Because, Lord, you are faithful and you are holy. Amen.